0: We're in James chapter 4 today, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 12. James 4, 6 through 12. And I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard Version. This is what James writes to us. James 4, 6. But he gives very great grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brethren. He who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? If you remember last week in our uh, sermon, we covered chapter four, verses one through five. And in, in chapter four, James really gets the reader's attention because up until now, he's been speaking very pastoral as a shepherd and, and challenging them, but you know, calling them my brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters. And, and last week in chapter four, verse four, he says, you adulteresses, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And I'm sure the readers are thinking, what happened to him? What did he eat this morning? Or what got into him that he's talking to us this way? And he continues this strong rebuke in our passage today, but he really also gives us some helpful, practical advice amidst the chastising. Last week we talked about how each one of us has unfulfilled desires. Unfulfilled desires call them appetites, that uh, we go throughout life trying desperately to fulfill and to satisfy. And the world offers us solutions, to be sure, but the solutions that the world offers don't really... Satisfy those appetites as much as they create stronger appetites that rage within us. And James says that, that that unquenched raging is what results in conflict and strife and fights in families and fights in churches and it's what causes nation to go to war against other nations because of these unfulfilled longings and this unsettled feeling. Well, God also declared at the end of verse 4, Last week, that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes themselves his enemy. And he goes on in verse 5 to say, because he is a jealous God. And we talked about the difference between envy and jealousy. Envy is wanting what's not rightfully yours. Jealousy is a very righteous emotion. It's, It's rightfully longing for and desiring that which is yours. And God basically is saying, you know, I will not share you with another. You know, you are mine. You've been bought with a price, and, and, and I, I'm going to treat you as such. And so all of that feeds into our, our text this morning. And the outline is for you there in the bulletin if you want to take notes. And after each point on the outline, I'm going to give you kind of a little bit extra to add to that. Point number one is that we're called to humble ourselves in verse 6 and 7. He says, but God gives great grace. Therefore, it says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And therefore, we are to submit to God. So the question is, how do we humble ourselves? Do we, do we get down really low? Do we try and be very meek and, and mild? You know, what's the practical posture for humility? And James suggests that we do that by submitting to God, by submitting to His will, submitting to His authority, by committing to obey Him and to follow His commands. God's opposition to the proud is a recurring theme and motif throughout the Old Testament. And the proud in the Old Testament are, are really symbolized by those who mock the Lord in His righteous decrees. By those who mock anyone that would deny themselves certain things in order to, to be holy before the Lord. That, that mock the necessity of purity and of, of moral absolutes. And uh, the proud person in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible is someone who sets himself up apart from God. Like, I'm a self-made person. Everything I have, I've worked hard for. I, I've uh, secured the success that I enjoy in my life. And, all, you know, God had nothing to do with it. And you know, I don't need God. I, I don't need a crutch. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a rock. And that's the arrogant person that God speaks out to. And the message that we see throughout the Bible is that God can't gift His grace to those who aren't willing to admit their need for the gift. God cannot gift His grace to those who see no need for it. I read a quote this week. A person said, Only when people realize their own ignorance will they ask for God's guidance. Only when they realize their own poverty will they pray for the riches of God's grace. Only when they realize their weakness will they draw upon God's strength. And only when they realize their own sin will they realize their need for a Savior. God blessing you with His grace and with His resources and with all the gifts that He has to offer you, it begins when you and I admit that we're, we're needy people. When we acknowledge the truth of Scripture that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yes, that that includes us, it begins with, from a point of need. And what James writes in verses six through seven of this passage is very similar to what Peter writes in his letter in First Peter chapter five, five through nine. Both draw upon Proverbs three thirty-four, which says, "God is opposed to the proud." But gives grace to the humble. And bo- both James and Peter begin with that. But then Peter goes on to say something which is very similar to James. First Peter 5, verse 5. He says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He might exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety upon Him, because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, And be on the alert, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. Both James and Peter call for us to humble ourselves before the Lord, to realize our rightful place in creation. And then they go on to say that we are to be of sober spirit and to be alert because Satan wants us for lunch. Satan wants to get the better of us, but we are to resist him. And both James and Peter promise that we have within us the power to resist the evil one, which we often doubt and, and distrust. Well, these parallels and these similarities between what James writes and what Peter writes lead many to believe that this was a widespread call to repentance that, that issued throughout the churches in Asia Minor during that first few centuries that Christianity blossomed. But again, it begs the question, how do we humble ourselves? And again, I would say from the text that we humble ourselves by submitting to God. Some people have quibbled that there's a difference between submission and obedience, and I think it's splitting hairs, but I would say that submission is that first crucial, necessary step to obedience. If you don't submit, you'll never obey. Because submission is the surrender of your will. Submission is the surrender of your will. And Scripture never wants for surrender to be something that's forced or mandated. That's why God gave us free choice. The most beautiful surrender is the surrender that comes from free will and free choice. Where someone does something not because they have to. Or not because of fear of the consequences, but because of love. That's really a picture of the mutual submission that is to take place in marriage. Not doing something because, well, that's my job. I guess that's what I'm called to do. But it's because I love my wife or I love my husband so much, I am going to submit and give myself to them and the Lord. And watching what God does through that. Well, submission is key to obedience. And obedience is key to humbling ourselves. When we submit to God we place ourselves under His Lordship. And we acknowledge that this means obeying Him in all things. Some of us are so good at obeying God and submitting to Him with some things, but then kind of feeling entitled to hold other things. You know, I'm mostly submitting. Look at all these ways that I'm yielding to God and following Him. I'm entitled to have, but obedience means everything. It's like like poker or a game where you're like, I'm all in. I'm, you know, everything's, everything's. If if this doesn't work, I'm. This is it, because I'm just giving everything to God. The Greek verb for submit literally means to put in order under. It's a military term, to put in order under, and it it means that we acknowledge and that we're aware that there's a hierarchy of authority, and that the supreme ultimate authority is God. All of us fit in under somebody in life. Some of us are CEOs and we have a lot of people under us. Others of us are kind of on on the lower end, but all of us report to God. God is the chief, ultimate, supreme authority, and it's an awareness of that and an acceptance of that. Scripture says many places that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful text that is for the deity of Christ. Because why would God have us ascribed glory and lordship to anyone other than himself? You know, I love to, when the cults come to my door and try and tell me that Jesus is just the Son of God, or just a prophet, or just the agent of creation, or all the other things, you know, anything less than God, I love to have them turn to the book of Revelation and and ask them, what's going on here? The whole heavenly host is worshiping the Lamb. And when does God ever tolerate worship of anyone other than Himself? That's complete blasphemy. So could it be that Jesus is God? I kind of think so, you know? And that's, what's, that's what we acknowledge and, and really reflect when we obey God, that He is the ultimate authority. We submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We obey His Word. We follow His his Word as absolute truth. Well, secondly, James says that we are to resist the devil. He says in verse 7 and verse 8, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will also draw near to you. Again, the question is begged, what does it mean to resist the devil? Because other places in Scripture, I'm told to flee from temptation. I was kind of raised, you know, in the Baptist church in Santa Barbara, like, don't ever take Satan head on, man. Just run away from him. Don't, you know, match fire for fire. Just flee, you know. You're no match for him. But Scripture says the way that we do battle with Satan is by drawing near to God, by leaning into the Father. I love years ago Ken Poor, who for years was the, the executive director of Humillate Christian Camp, he used to talk about how it's impossible to lust and to praise God at the same time. He said, anytime you're tempted to lust after something, counter that by praising God, because the two are incompatible. You can't do both at the same time. It's a choice. And, And James is telling us here that we resist Satan by leaning into the arms of our Heavenly Father and by understanding how much he loves us. And how much that He is there for us. And by, by feeling that as we lean into Him, He leans into us. And He is that presence that will never fail us or forsake us. One of my favorite authors and pastors, Wayne Jacobson, he pastored for years in Visalia, California, and he wrote a book uh, called The Vine and the Branches, which talks about the imagery of John chapter 15, how you know we are the branches, and if we abide in the vine, we'll produce fruit. Jesus says in John 15, you know, apart from me you can do nothing, but if you abide in me you can do all things. And he talked about how the real issue that was going on in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve is that they really didn't know how much God loved them. They didn't really understand because if they understood how much God loved them, they would have never bought into the lies of the serpent. The serpent deceived them into thinking, God's holding back on you. Sure, he's giving you all the stuff to enjoy, but why has he withheld this tree? There's something weird about that, you know? Why Why would a loving God withhold something from you? And so rather than focusing on all that God had given, they focused in on the one thing that they were denied. And you know what? Satan does that same thing with each one of us. Yeah, you live in a nice house. Yeah, you drive at night. But why can't you vacation where everyone else vacations? Why don't your kids go to the same, you know, on whatever it is, you know? You focus on the one thing you don't have rather than everything you do have. But Wayne argues that if Adam and Eve really knew how much God loved them, if they really believed that, that he wouldn't withhold anything good from them, that he had their best in mind, they would have laughed the serpent out of the garden. Are you kidding me? God holding back on us? Get out of here, you stupid snake. How ridiculous. And you and I would diffuse sin the same way if we really understood that God had our back. That we, If we really understood that He doesn't want to deny anything good or, or healthy from us. That if anything is withheld, it's for our own good. Well, what... What James writes in verse 7 and 8 is very similar to what Paul writes in Ephesians 6. That word resist in the New Testament means to stand against, to oppose, to withstand. And, and notice all of those are a defensive posture. The victory is standing on ground and, and withstanding, standing firm and not giving up territory. Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 13, Therefore take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. And stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth and having put the breastplate of righteousness on and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Brittany and I, our worship director, were talking about this text this week as I was telling her where I was going with our passage, and I was reminding her that in ancient times the shields weren't some little round disc that you held up, they were a full body shield that was like six feet, and she's like, that's a lot bigger than what I would need, and I'm like, yeah, but you stood behind that thing, and the front of the shield was covered with leather, the skin of an animal. And the enemy would oftentimes shoot an arrow that was a flaming arrow. But as it embedded in the leather, it would be extinguished. And so this shield didn't just protect your head or your heart. or It was a whole. You stood behind it. And the imagery here is that we stand behind the truth of God's Word. We stand behind all of the resources that God has given to us in order that we might withstand and oppose and stand firm and resist the evil one. The word devil comes from the Greek word diabolos. It's the word from which we get our English word diabolical or devilish. And it literally means to thrust through. Which makes sense because in Scripture, Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren. And he shoots his fiery arrows at us. And he desires and and intends on, on hurting and maiming and wounding and shaming and guilting. Those are his attacks. To thrust through. That word also means to come between. And it's, it's symbolic of the fact that he continually tries to come between us and the Lord. He, he continually tries to, to drive a wedge between husbands and wives and marriage. Between parents and children. In all of our relationships, he seeks to come between and to thrust through with attacks and with accusations. But the promise that James gives us, and the promise that we find in Scripture, is as we draw near to God, He draws near to us. And we are fortified, we are strengthened to do battle with the enemy. Because His attacks are diffused, and they don't have the same effect. We're assured by God in Scripture that as we draw near to Him, there's reconciliation, there's restoration with the Father. The most beautiful story that we have of that is the prodigal son, where the son receives his dad's inheritance ahead of time, which is, I said last week was as good as telling his dad, I wish you were dead already, just give me my money and I'll be on my way. You know, Give me what's rightfully mine. And he went out and he spent it on careless, immoral living. And then he came to a point where the text says he came to the end of himself. He came to the end of his resources, the end of his pride, the end of his dignity. And he reasoned, you know, my father's servants have a better life than I'm living right now. The animals that my father owns are eating better food than I'm eating right now. I will go back to my father and I will become one of his indentured slaves. Even that will be better than the existence I'm I'm experiencing right now. And the story says that as the as the Father, who obviously represents God, saw his son on the horizon coming back, he gathered up his long flowing it 's what it means to gird your loins, all of the long flowing garments tied them up, and he did the most undignified thing that a, a man in the Middle East will do. He ran Middle Eastern men never run with, and he, he ran because love compelled him, such was his his desire to show his son that how how glad he was to have him back in fellowship and in relationship with him. And he asked the servants to put the best robe on him and a ring upon him. Like, no, you are not a slave. You are my son. You will never stop being my son or my daughter, as the case may be. And he demonstrated that as we draw near, he draws near. to He doesn't wait for us to come all the way before the throne He doesn't guilt us with, you know, so I'm sure you're never going to do that again. I hope you've learned your lesson. That was stupid. Like, don't be thinking that again. But rather, his arms are open wide. His love is unconditional. Well, finally in our text, James says that we are to purify ourselves. And we see that that purifying has an external component and an internal component. He says in verse 8 and 9, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. We'll talk about that in a minute. Some heavy words there. But this external and internal component is similar to what David says in the Psalms, Psalm 24. He asks the question, Who may ascend to the, the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place, in His holy presence? the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, the external, the internal, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. That phrase, cleanse your hands, originally referred to the ceremonial cleansing that the high priest would go through in order to perform the temple duties. And it spoke of Christians in general, what they would do to make themselves ceremonially fit in order to approach God and worship. But over the years, people realized that this ceremonial cleansing was much more than the external, but it also involved the heart, because everything comes from the heart. And if we don't have God purify our hearts, we'll be repeating the same ugly immoral behavior over and over again. And that, that fits right in with James' accusation that his readers are double-minded. The, the Greek is literally two-souled. You have one soul that craves the world and another soul that craves God. One soul that craves the spiritual another longs after the flesh. You're divided. Many commentators and theologians think that this is a term that James coined because he used it back in chapter 1. He seems to be the, the one person using this in the New Testament. In chapter 1 he talked about the double-minded man who's unstable in all of his ways. He's like the waves of the sea, tossed here and there. No anchor, no no not grounded, but just floating wherever the wind or the storm drives. And the fact that he repeats it here... He, he's accusing his readers of, of trying to be friends with the world while at the same time being friends with the Lord. and He's saying, you've got divided loyalties. You've got divided allegiances, and you need to make a choice. Are you going to try and have your cake and eat it too, or are you going to give yourself fully to the Lord? Are you going to stop playing games with God? Stop chasing after appetites that will never be fulfilled? James's readers were demonstrating this double-minded behavior and their jealousy and their selfishness and their failing in chapter 1 to, to follow through on what they heard and said with their actions, with their double use of the tongue in chapter 3, their blessing, their Lord and Father, their cursing, their brother and sisters who are made in His image, with their disputes in chapter 4 that led to strife, and even desires to murder each other. And he's saying it's an internal and an external action of purifying your hearts while you cleanse your hands. In verse 9, James is drawing upon the image of the Old Testament prophets when he he tells us to, to grieve and to mourn and to wail. This is the reaction that the prophets were trying to draw from God's people to save them from the judgment of God. And... What he's combating here is really, when he says, let your, let your laughter be turned into mourning, which seems to be an exact contradiction to the Apostle Paul saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. But James isn't talking about the, the kind of joy that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you stand pure and holy before the Lord. He's talking about the kind of joy that comes from, from sinful Actions that is joy for the moment, but then passes away. And he's saying the only way to have the joy that God promises is not to ignore or tolerate sin, but it comes from facing our sin and the reality of our sin and bringing it before the Lord in repentance and humility and allowing Him to cleanse us. But the, the laughter that he's talking about is the laughter of the fool in the Old Testament. The fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And because there is no God, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, we all turn into worms anyway, so it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. You know, grab whatever you want, pursue whatever you want in this life, because it's all going to end, so just enjoy yourself on this ride while you're here. There is no God. There is no judgment. There are no consequences. So just do whatever you want. And James is combating that and saying nothing could be further from the truth. Again, in verse 10, he tells us to humble ourselves. He began that in verse 7, and he completes it in verse 10. And again, it's by submitting ourselves to the Lordship of the Lord, humbling ourselves before Him, recognizing our own spiritual poverty, acknowledging our desperate need for His help. And finally, in verses 11 to 12, he, he seems to end a larger segment on community conflict that really began back in chapter 3. By saying, you know, don't, don't slander one another. Don't speak evil against each other. Because there's really, he gives two reasons for that. Number one, you are not the law. You are not the final authority. God's word is. That's, that's the biggest reason. Who are you to put yourself in the place of God's word? And number two, who are you to deny God of his rightful place? He is the ultimate judge. He will right every wrong. He will draw everybody into accountability. That's why Paul says in Romans, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You can try and seek vengeance, but you won't do half a good job as the Lord will do. Leave it to Him. Let Him repay. Let Him settle accounts. Let Him bring justice. Let Him advocate. He says in verse 12, There is only one lawgiver and judge The one who is able to save and to destroy. So stay out of it. You just draw yourself into judgment by playing the judge yourself. Well, some application as we close. Some brief application of all this. I read a quote by Martin Luther this week that I had never read before, and he said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands that I still possess. I've held many things in my life in my hands, and I have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. You know, all of this started at the beginning of chapter 4 with desires and longings that every one of us has And we nurse those and we meditate and reflect on those and those get out of control. We try and feed those with the wrong things and the appetite just grows. And pretty soon our actions are just despicable because we're acting out on impulses and desires that have got just way out of control, that have grown into monsters. And and we're no longer free people, but we're really enslaved to our passions and our desires. And the challenge is, are we going to trust that a loving Heavenly Father will not withhold anything good from us? That He has our best in mind. That rather than trying to go through life seeking and grabbing and, and, and just seizing what we believe is rightfully ours, we can trust that God will give those things to us. I read a story this week about Charlie and Agnes. Charlie was the head of the Pacific Garden Mission, which was in Chicago, to drug addicts and, and people on the streets. And it made me miss my father-in-law even more because that ministry started in his church. I told you guys my father-in-law grew up at Northside Gospel Center in Chicago, and that's the church that started Awana. My father-in-law was in the very first Awana group, and Art Roheimer, who was the president until this year where he died at age ninety-nine, was my father-in-law's commander. But over 100 mission organizations started out of this little church. Unless you think it was a church like Calvary Community in Westlake, it was a church of 200. So think a church just like ours started over 100 mission organizations and radio broadcasts that today if I were to list them, you'd go, dang, really? Seriously? This church of 200 had a fleet of buses and they went out to the streets of Chicago and brought in kids for Awana they would have over 500 kids every week for Awana because of this busing ministry of just bringing them in and feeding them and teaching them God's Word. Church of 200, that was their reach. Well, I missed my father-in-law because as I read this story about Charlie and Agnes, in the past I would have called John and John would have said, oh yeah, Charlie. And he would have given me the whole backstory and all the details that, that the story didn't tell me because he knew everyone in the world. He just was larger than life. And everyone in ministry he knew, but... I read about this pastor that went to see Charlie and Agnes in action and see what they did in their ministry. He was just amazed at their love for the people that they served. And one night they were going to dinner together and the pastor was sitting in the back seat behind Charlie and Agnes. And Charlie and Agnes just had their arms around each other as Charlie drove. And he said they were just beaming from ear to ear, so fulfilled in their work, so in love with each other. And the pastor just thought, I don't think there are two more happy, or fulfilled people in all the world. And then he saw this little sticker on Charlie's dashboard, and it said this, God always gives what's best to those who leave the choice to Him. God always gives what's best to those who leave the choice to Him. And it challenged me that that really summarizes everything we're talking about. If you and I really believe in a loving Heavenly Father, then we need to trust that He will give us what we need when we need it. We don't have to get it through sinful, disobedient means. We don't have to rush His timing and think that we know better than Him. But trust that He will not withhold anything good from us, anything that will help us and grow us and help us. Let's pray.